Hey everyone, David Bowden here. Before we start the show, we have a special announcement from the team here at Spoken Gospel. As we approach our summer film block, we're filming our final introductions for our whole project on the Bible, including books of the Bible like the book of Revelation and Chronicles, and it's going to be an amazing time. And we are almost finished funding our need for this film block, and we have about $30,000 left to cross the finish line. And we are asking you, our podcast listeners, to help make this possible. So please consider supporting our mission by visiting the Spoken Gospel website, clicking on donate and contributing what you can. Whether you choose to donate once or monthly, we're so grateful for your support. Okay, now on with the show. And so I think our invitation is fairly similar. It's like, read your Bible carefully and know that God is up to something far more in the simple play-by-play -play of history, mm. the history of Israel is the prototype for the salvation of all of the universe. Yeah. Welcome to the Spoken Gospel Podcast. Spoken Gospel is a ministry that's dedicated to speaking the gospel out of every corner of scripture. In Luke 24, Jesus told his disciples that every part of the Bible was about him. So each week, hosts David and Seth work through a passage of scripture to see how it's all about Jesus and his good news. Let's jump in. Well, welcome everyone to the Spoken Gospel Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. We're continuing our look at the book of Matthew. Seth, how you feeling? Man. We finished a talk on genealogies. Which, one of the most exciting, <laughs> I, as we said, I, I don't remember who's on air or off air. I think air, it was off air. But the best conversation about <laughs> genealogies that exists on the internet. That's right. <laughs> because there's only a few. There's only like four. <laughs> we think we did a decent job. That's really funny. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, I'm excited to talk today about Joseph, Joseph. and Mary, uh, Mary and, and Joseph. the birth of Jesus, and okay. the way this is Matthew's way of talking about the books of Genesis mm. and the beginnings of the book of Exodus. Okay. So Matthew is using the birth narrative of Jesus and the parents of Joseph and Mary to play out like the back half of the book of Genesis and the beginnings of the book of Exodus. Mm. So as we look to read the Old Testament according to Matthew, right. he sees the Old Testament, the books of Genesis and Exodus being replayed in Jesus's parents, Joseph and Mary. Mm. Okay, so we have a genealogy that leads up to this point and then we have a birth narrative. Is there anything significant about a, like a birth narrative because like last time we kind of took a step back and we were like what is a genealogy what role does it play what expectations of genealogies do we have that need to be subverted yeah. what about birth narratives i think a birth narrative functions similarly to a genealogy in that it prepares you for the life of the individual that's being described mm. So what you expect in a miraculous birth narrative is to have some sense of what this miraculous child will do in the future, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I think that's part of its function. Yeah, I was just, I was remembering back to my old undergraduate days, and uh, I was remembering that the birth narratives of Jesus were riffing on not only the Old Testament, but also on the birth narratives of mm -hmm. 
the lords of the day, Caesar Augustus himself. Okay, okay. And so they would have these miraculous birth narratives with journeys and with gifts being presented and with the hosts of heaven, mm -hmm. you know, bearing witness to it. And Jesus is subverting all of those. Interesting. As the new Kurios, the new Lord, the new Caesar of a new kingdom. Hmm. But what's interesting about that, now that we're trying to read the Old Testament according to Matthew and we were laser focused on like Genesis, yeah. what's interesting about that is Genesis itself, the creation, the birth narrative of the world, right. was riffing on Babylonian myths of the day or hmm. ancient Mesopotamian myths of the day. And it was basically taking the formula of those old creation narratives, the birth narratives of, of the, the universe. universe, and riffing on them to reveal who God is mm -hmm. and flipping them upside down, subverting them. And now it's interesting yeah. that, well, Caesar was claimed, you know, claimed to be a god, and he has a birth narrative mm -hmm. kind of like the universe, and Jesus' birth, much like the creation narrative, is doing the same Yeah cultural work interesting in subverting them so i hadn't thought about that before until sitting here yeah. right now well as we go through uh the next couple chapters in the book of matthew the idea that a star or a light in the sky mm. signals the birth of a king yeah is kind of a common right or a somewhat well-established phenomenon for the people in the story so king herod is like wait there's a star and the wise men there's a star that must, there must mean. mean there's a king oh. and in the old testament we're told that a star will rise from judah a scepter uh -huh. will rise which is in the book of numbers uh, like this idea that when a star rises a new leader is rising so like mm. there's this that idea is pretty well established in the ancient world mm. that Jesus is living in and Matthew's aware of it and that actually drives part of the drama of the narrative yeah. moving forward. So it's just cool as we step into birth narratives. Yeah. And so before we get caught up in the birth narrative itself, oh, we yeah. should probably just place ourselves in the next movement in the text that Matthew wants us to focus on. Okay. And it really focuses on Joseph. Hmm. So starting in chapter one, verse 18 through 25, Joseph is going to have a dream there's going to be an angel that shows up, um, and then Jesus is going to be born. Joseph is going to have another dream in a little while, and it's going to tell him to flee to Egypt. And then Joseph is going to have a third dream even later with another angel, and it's going to tell him to go back into Israel, and he's going to settle in Nazareth. Okay. So these three dreams of Joseph kind of like give us the structure for everything else that's happening around them. That's pretty cool. So, and the reason why that's significant is because Joseph, Jesus's father, is supposed to start connecting us back to another Joseph in scripture, the mm. Joseph of Genesis, who is also a dreamer. A dreamer. Yeah. Uh, and so we're, we're playing with the characters and ideas and stories of the book of Genesis now yeah. being repeated in Jesus' life. It makes sense too, because you have the genealogy of the sons of Jacob played out mm -hmm. immediately before meeting Joseph and hearing all about his dreams. Yeah. So here we have the genealogy of this new Joseph leading to Jesus right before we hear all about his dreams. Yeah. So he is riffing and right. mapping on That's to right. the Genesis story. We kind of start at the beginning of Genesis in the last episode with the genealogies, but now we're moving through and we are now at the end of Genesis because all of Joseph's stories are there at the end of Genesis. Yeah. And then hinging over into the beginning of Exodus, like you said. Right. But before we get too far into the latter parts of the book of Genesis, which we'll get into, okay. Matthew isn't finished giving us 
hints that we're still in some new creation moment. Mm. So this is how the birth of the Messiah came about. That word birth mm-hmm. is the word Genesis. Oh. So <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. So this is the Genesis of Jesus the Messiah. So already, just with that one simple word choice, we're not just thinking about a birth narrative. We're thinking about a creation narrative. Okay. So he's priming me to go back to Genesis again. Yes. But not necessarily with a genealogy table of nations in my brain but with creation on the mind. Yes. So I should be thinking, all right, creation, page one, first few words, I should be thinking there's nothing, there's mm-hmm. emptiness, and I should see God out of nowhere in his spirit creating everything. That's right. That's what I'd be primed for yes. in that moment. And so in the very beginning of the creation story, the Genesis story, yes. you have nothingness, and then we're introduced to a woman who has nothingness inside of her. No mm. man has ever come near her. She's a, a virgin. This is Mary. She represents virginal waters, mm. complete, total, unordered mass of cells. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And then what happens? Just as in the creation narrative, the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit hovered over the face of the waters. Yep. The Holy Spirit comes onto the belly of Mary, the mm. womb of Mary, and brings new life recreation from nothing yeah which i think is fascinating in its own right but then what happens in the book of genesis is that after all creation is made god creates adam Mm -hmm. there's nobody suitable for him so he puts adam to sleep and then when he wakes he finds his bride and marries her. And what happens in this story? After life is formed out of nothing. Out of the womb of the earth. Out of the womb of the earth, a man falls asleep, Mm. has a dream, rises up, and takes his new bride. Whoa, that's cool. So Matthew has made sure that we understand that in the birth of Jesus and the marriage of Mary and Joseph, we have a retelling in miniature of the Mm. creation of the world telling us as readers several thousand years later that whatever's happening with this small family represents the recreation of the world. A new world order is coming from this family. I see. Okay, because I was going to ask the question, like, what is what is Matthew doing here? Is he just being a really good Hebrew writer mm-hmm. where he is bringing in themes from the Hebrew scriptures to talk about the culmination of everything God is doing or is he doing some serious Christological theology here telling us something about who Jesus is and what he's here to do and if so what does that mean and you've said he's coming to bring a new world order to recreate the world but like I don't I doubt people in this time or maybe I'm wrong maybe they did did they see the world as uncreated or at like needing a new world order like what would a person be thinking reading this would they be thinking like wait what we don't need to create the world again what's going on well i mean the old testament is full of images of like a restored redeemed renewed Mm, jerusalem hills dripping with wine Mm. or a new mountain of god surrounded by flames like the people of god had always expected some cataclysmic event would happen like the day of the lord the day of the lord would come and on that day the whole world order would be reestablished reimagined jerusalem would be recreated yeah and so i think matthew is 
playing on those themes. The idea of a new creation coming, maybe not in those la- that language, yeah. was necessarily always used by the prophets, but the idea Definitely. of returning to some Edenic state right. by God's power in the future totally was. And what's interesting here is like, in Jesus and in this family, God is doing a new work of creation that humanity has never been able to do in the past mm. or, or been able to do on its own. Salvation is literally coming from the Holy Spirit, from the outside, just mm. as it did. Life is coming from the outside, just as it did when God created the world with his own words. I see. And God, yeah, I was going to ask, I was like, okay, I get yeah. like the big, broad, yeah. 30,000 foot, like, we need a new world order mm-hmm. and all creation's been groaning for things to be remade and get back to Eden, which is like really, really cool. Why is that in a birth narrative about a person? Right. And I think you've nailed it. It's because Jesus saves. Like, yeah. God will save through this being. He is the agent of recreation. Yeah, God's kingdom isn't going to come through reproduction. Mm. It's not going to come through political power. It's not going to come through technology. Salvation from human sin specifically is what Matthew says, will come when God enters the world from outside. Mm. And so Mary's womb is like this womb of the world and her virgin womb, when covered by the spirit, she's going to bring order to the chaos that has governed God's people for so long. And that's not from human ingenuity, human effort, but from God's divine power coming in from the outside. I've never thought of it like this, but and I, I hope I don't tiptoe into heresy here. <laughs> but sometimes the best news is just right up next to yeah. you. Know, uh, there's a Latin phrase that nerds use when they talk about how God created the world. Yeah. Right? He created it ex nihilo. Yes. Out of nothing. Out of nothing. And it's interesting to think about the salvation of the universe through Jesus being salvation ex nihilo. Yeah. Salvation out of nothing. Right. That, like you said, no human ingenuity, no political power, no uh, progeny or anything yeah. like that. It's all, why is Matthew telling this story? It's to show that God is the one who's doing the saving. Mm-hmm. That he is the one, like he did in Abraham and Sarah's story through the miraculous birth of mm-hmm. their son, right? He's now yeah. doing another miraculous birth, but completely outside the agency of man mm-hmm. for multiple reasons, but for one reason here, to show just like he did in creation that God is not dependent or in need of anyone to bring out the creation or salvation he has planned. Yeah, and that's why Mary's virginity is actually kind of an important point here. Mm -hmm. Because if Jesus was just another human spawn, like another, another offspring of another couple, it wouldn't be salvation from the old way of doing things. Hmm. We'd still be tied to the old system of having a son who had a son who had a son who one day maybe hopefully be the king mm-hmm. but no if, if it's a virgin birth yeah god's salvation is coming from the outside and nothing will be able to overcome it mm. the way that human reproduction has done so in the past like symbolically it's incredibly powerful that mary is a virgin because it mm. proves that what God is doing in this phase is new and different, yes, but also the sin that was attendant with the old way of doing things yeah. will not have a part of what's to come. Yeah, that's really cool. I've never seen the virginity of Mary, the doctrine of the virginity yeah. of Mary, as as good news of of my own inadequacies. Like, I don't need to add something to mm-hmm. what Jesus has done. I right. can bring 
the the virginity of my righteousness. Like yeah, yeah, my yeah. righteousness <laughs> is just non-existent, you know. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. And it's a virgin before God, and He doesn't need it. Yeah, He doesn't need me to be active in that. Mm-hmm. So it's just like that's interesting. It is super interesting. The other thing, and I don't know if I'm allowed to leave Genesis one and two yet. Please, but if I am. I'm like, oh, right over the horizon of Genesis 1 and 2 is another thing that I feel like Matthew might be mapping onto that I've never thought of before, and it's kind of messing with me. Okay. Is the story of the Nephilim. Oh, yeah. Because, again, right after new creation, you then have the... Sons uh, of God. Yes, the sons of God, a heavenly being coming down Mm -hmm. and having spiritual to physical sexual relations of some kind that create offspring interesting that end up being the decreation of the world hmm. these nephilim who end up becoming the anakim of the philistines yeah, 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 and the canaanites yeah. and maybe even goliath himself you know right they end up being the scourge of god's people that they have to push back yeah and now you have god himself and the holy spirit hmm. coming to a daughter of man yeah and instead of creating these abominations hmm. he creates the son of God. That is interesting. And I hadn't un- thought about that either. undoes the curse of the Nephilim, hmm. which is like, whoa, crazy right. stuff happening there. Yeah, that's super interesting. I hadn't thought about that. So um, he's been, doesn't it seem like to be out of the question if he's writing the story of Jesus alongside the story of Genesis. And we do have a, a strange spirit physical birth right. that leads to the decreation of so much. And now we have a physical, spiritual birth that leads to the restoration mm-hmm. of the entire world. It feels like something Matthew would do. Yeah. And I hadn't thought about that until this moment. Yeah. So that's cool. It, like, while we're on the subject yeah. of the importance of virginity, mm. we should talk about the name God with us and the prophecy of Isaiah 714. Like this is what... Oh, because that's there's a prophecy about a virgin. Right. And well, maybe before we get there, why is... Mary's virginity important according to Matthew. Mm. He tells us because he will save his people from their sins. She was conceived by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. You should call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins, which is kind of everything we've been saying. Why is Mary's virginity important? It's to preserve the reality that God is coming to recreate a world and save it from their sin. Okay. I, I'm you're gonna have to help me there. Yeah, so. I, I'm having a hard time understanding the correlation between Jesus as the savior of sin mm. with virginity. <laughs> Can you draw a straight line between those for me? Well, what I mean is we had just talked about how like the human experiment has always tried to use something like political power, reproduction, mm-hmm. technology to save God's people, protect it from the evil in the world, but it always ends up leading to sin, to decay, to decreation, to Mm. the exile of Israel. So in this moment right here, we have a new creation happening without any of the means of human intervention that God's people have used in the past. Reproduction is even a part Mm. of it. The Holy Spirit comes, does the work for them to symbolize that this new era, this new kingdom that God is bringing will be free from sin. It will be free from the sin that has plagued humans' attempts to live with God since the beginning of the book of Genesis. Mm. Does that does, does that clarify what? I think so. Let me let me try to reiterate that in a way that I can grasp onto. So ever since the beginning, 
a problem has existed inside of the human race. And that is that we have tried to obtain our righteousness or our relationship with God or our place in this world or how we're supposed to be inside of it. We've tried to do that through our own ingenuity instead of through like God's ways and God's wisdom. Yeah. I mean, ever since the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Mm -hmm. right? That's where we we went wrong. Mm -hmm. God had a way for us to do things and through our own ingenuity, he thought she could, if I knew the the knowledge of good and evil, I could do it better. And so she tried to understand good and evil, define it for herself and grab the the fruit. She brought her own ingenuity into the world. Mm -hmm. And then ever since then, outside of the garden, man has been creating other kids in their own image. Yeah. Through their own ingenuity, even through reproduction, they're creating children born in sin, born in mm-hmm. their own image. Mm-hmm. And you're saying that God being the father figure here introduces a new kind of person mm-hmm. that is unstained by the grasping for knowledge, the grasping mm-hmm. for sinful ingenuity, and that he's starting like a new humanity free from those old patterns of sin. Yes, I think that's what I'm saying. <laughs> okay. Jesus represents God's new era of salvation mm-hmm. apart from human effort, not yeah. even the effort of having a child, which up to this point in human history has been the only way that God has saved his people. Mm-hmm. That's why you have a genealogy at the beginning of, of Matthew. Right. God always saves his, his people through children. Yeah, through a chosen child. Well, mm-hmm. th- it's it's a David. It's David. It's the mm-hmm. son of David. Mm-hmm. It's you know, it's like it's always been a child, and it's still a child. But this time, not a child born through a genealogy. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah. no kid that we can be like, that's my boy. Right. I had a hand in that. Yeah, yeah. it's there's something a new creation happening, mm-hmm. and in this new this new creative work that's happening in Jesus will save the world from sin. Mm. Yeah. Okay. I think that makes sense then. So that's the reason why Mary's virginity is such good news. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that's part of it. Oh, that's and part the, of it. And the other part of it is the prophecy from the book of Isaiah. Ah, uh, that her virginity not only points to a theological point, but that it is actually also fulfilling another part of Scripture. Well, they're both theological points, okay. and that one is like Jesus will save us from our sin, mm-hmm. but the other theological point is that God is with us. Mm. And... How else could you prove more viscerally that God is with us than becoming human? <laughs> you know, <Right>. like <laughs> yeah, yeah, through like what are very close to the normal biological means of becoming yeah. a human, being born, being incubated in a womb, and right, like brought into the world. Because Emmanuel could mean a whole bunch of things, right. right? Oh, God's with us in this room. God's attention, His affection, yeah. His victory over His people. Like He was with Israel yes. in fire and clouds and parting Red Seas. He's always been Emmanuel. He's always been Emmanuel. Yeah. But when God is born of a virgin, mm. God with us takes on a whole new connotation that Entirely. it's never had before. I mean, so much so that that kind of Emmanuel has made people think Christianity is a heresy for saying that God could be with us in that way. Right. Yes. It's, it's like, even as I've been thinking about it, it feels counterintuitive to talk about God as a man mm-hmm. or like Jesus only exists as a human. Mm. Right. And what <laughs> you mean by that, what you mean by that is the since second, his conception, yeah, since like the second person of the Trinity, the son of God has eternally existed with God the Father and will forever eternally exist. But Jesus, the named human, right. who is the incarnate 
eternal son of God yeah. became that yes. in this moment that we're reading. Right. And there's no distance in him between God and humanity. Right. It's like the hope of the whole Old Testament is that God could live with humans. Right. And that was the hope of the of the garden, the Genesis one. And in Jesus, you have it not in God walking in the garden with Adam and Eve having a relationship with them. Mm-hmm. You have God resting inside of a like not even resting inside of a human, God as human. Right. Right. Which is like, oh, I never thought of this. Is like kind of prefigured in how God created Adam in the first place. He breathed, he into, breathed into him. You mm-hmm. had the breath, which is the ruach, the spirit, the wind of God. Yeah comes into a man mm-hmm. to animate him. Mm-hmm. But he's his own autonomous human being. Yeah. But in Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the holy breath, the holy wind of God is blown into a human and you get God himself yeah. as the new Adam. Yeah. I mean, it, oh, or to say it another way, in Genesis 1, God's breath breathes on dirt and you get a human mm-hmm. being. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In Matthew chapter 1, God's breath breathes on a woman and you get the son of God. Mm-hmm. It's just like really interesting. It's really cool. So here's the question then. Okay. So what does God with us mean then for us? What will it accomplish? Because it's not just a theological right. truth for us to meditate on. It's meant to tell us something will be accomplished right. by the fact that God becomes human. And so for this answer, I think you actually have to dig into Isaiah 7, yeah. which is where the prophecy comes okay. from. But you you look like your mind is spinning before I even get there. Well, yeah, because I was just, I was trying to think of like, wh- wh- why do we need to qualify what does it mean that God is with us? Right. And I was like, well, there are some situations that that might actually be bad news. That God is with that us. That God is with us. It's like, oh, if you come down here, how can you help us? Mm-hmm. We need you up there throwing meteors down on our enemies. Yeah. Like, <laughs> what are you doing slumming it down here? What are you doing here? Go back up there where you had all the power. Why are you why are you why are you with us in yeah. this capacity? Mm-hmm. It's a it's you came a little too close. You, right. You divested yourself or something. Like mm-hmm. why did you come and be with us in this way? But anyway, I yes. that was just where my mind was spinning. But yes, let's go to Isaiah. Let's go to Isaiah. Okay, so we're asking the question, what does God with us mean? Right. What is it going to accomplish? And Isaiah 7 is going to show us that it accomplishes two things. Mm. When God is with us, he defeats our enemies and he judges evil. Okay. Specifically, he judges the leadership of Israel by the virgin birth. Whoa. Yeah. Are you ready to go? Uh, Yeah. Uh, Okay. Set the table uh, for me real quick for, for Isaiah. Yes. Okay. So... Historically, yes. in the book of Isaiah, uh, the leaders of the northern state of Israel mm-hmm. are pressuring the wicked king Ahaz, who leads the southern state of Judah, mm-hmm. to surrender to Assyria. Oh, okay, because they're going to do it. Because right, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like you know, you're making us look bad, right? And so, but Ahaz resists. He mm. doesn't want to surrender to Assyria and start paying them taxes or yeah. whatever, whatever that would mean. And so the two leaders of Israel threaten to invade Jerusalem and Judah, Ahaz's territory, mm-hmm. and divide the land among themselves in order to remain the good graces of Assyria. Okay. So the wicked king Ahaz is under serious political threat from his brothers in the north of Israel right. with Assyria 
in the background. Okay. But Ahaz is about to be given a prophecy by Isaiah. Mm. And Isaiah says that the two-headed attack, the two the, the, the attack from those two different leaders in mm-hmm. the north of Israel will fail. It, oh. w- it won't work. Okay. And so he says, I want you to ask me for a sign that it will happen. Oh. And he, d- he tells Ahaz to ask him to give him a sign, which is odd. It is odd. But it's important for a reason we'll get into in a second. But what's happening here is Ahaz is a wicked king. Right. He doesn't trust God. No. He doesn't believe God is going to do anything. He, he would. He, ne- he'd probably need a sign. He would need a sign. But regardless, Isaiah says, okay, ask God for a sign. Mm. And then Ahaz says, no, 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 I won't. If you say it, mm. that'll be enough for me. I won't put God to the test. Oh. And it's a really odd moment because you've been putting God to the test through your entire leadership. You know, through You're, all your sin. Through and, all your yeah. sin and everything else. <laughs> and You're, now you want to try to pretend to be righteous? That's exactly the so point. So it's a false humility. It's oh, a false no, hu- I don't need a sign. I don't need a sign. I don't need a sign. And then Isaiah says, well, I'm going to give it to you anyway. <laughs> Apologies to all of our British listeners for my terrible British <laughs> accent when that was like, oh, that's what pompous people sound like. Right, that, yeah. that, pompous people equal British. That, I apologize. At David Bowden. <laughs> that, don't, don't at me. I don't have any social media. <laughs> so in response to the oncoming attack of the north of Israel and in response to the king of Israel's false piety, he is given the sign of a young woman being given a child. And before that child is fully grown, whether before he knows right or wrong, Judah's enemies will be destroyed. Hmm. So that's the context of the prophecy about Emmanuel. Okay, so the sign is that a young woman who's a virgin, uh, right, who's not yet... She's a marriable... So a, that's, yeah, 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 she's a... She's a an eligible woman who's yep. not yet slept with a man yes will before your reign is over conceive a child and by the time that child is grown before the child before is grown. the child is grown your enemies will have failed yeah the idea okay. is there will be a fairly significant birth a birth you'll see as kind of important or significant mm. and then before that child is even grown up your problems will be solved okay. so the idea is that it'll happen pretty quickly and it will be noticeable i mean if i was ahaz i would yes. be going like okay how do i identify this kid cuz kids are being born all the time and right people, like virgins are getting married all the time that's right how do i know that this is the kid that's a great question. Great. <laughs> Can we get there in a second? Oh, sure. Yes. It's, but it's the right question because, okay. like, how do you, like, this has to be a significant birth. Right. It has to be remarkable in some way. And what's interesting is Matthew, when he quotes this passage, it says, a virgin will give birth. Mm-hmm. But in Isaiah, it doesn't say virgin. It mm. says a young woman will right. give birth, a maiden will give birth. So now, to all the people looking in their Bibles who yes. say, my Bible says virgin in Isaiah, mm-hmm. what do you say to them? <sighs> Are you ready for some Hebrew? I'm always <laughs> ready for some Hebrew. So the Hebrew word is Alma. Okay, yeah. Which means maiden, a mm-hmm. woman of marriable age, mm-hmm. which assumes or has the connotation of virginity. Of virginity. Right. Not necessarily so, but perhaps. Right. That would be a marry a marriable woman in that age uh, that would, day would be a virgin. Right. But what's interesting is if Isaiah wanted to say virgin, he had a very clear word mm. to use virgin. Okay. But he chose not to use it. There's something ambiguous about the phrase. It could mean virgin, but mm. it doesn't necessarily mean virgin. Interesting. Which, in my opinion, leads us up for the fact that there will be a child born in Isaiah's lifetime that who's before he's fully grown, 
the enemies of Judah are defeated. And that's not a virgin birth. It's a natural birth. Right. But when Matthew reads it, he's reading in between the lines of that Hebrew word. So, well, Alma could mean virgin. And in Jesus, it becomes virgin because Mary doesn't have sex with Joseph. Yeah, that's interesting. What's interesting, too, is as you were talking, I was looking up Matthew's word for virgin. Mm -hmm. And it seems to have a similar connotation. It goes both ways. It goes both ways. Yeah. That it's uh, a young woman of marriageable age with or without focus on virginity is yeah. the definition. It has the connotation of it, but not the necess- necessity like, of it. The necessity of it. Right. So they both then, both Isaiah and Matthew mm-hmm. in Hebrew in the former and Greek in the latter, are using a word to talk about a marriageable, I don't even know if I'm saying that word right, yeah, woman. Yeah. Uh, a maiden. A maiden. Um, it just makes me think of Robin Hood. <laughs> But Maid Marian, <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, a, a young woman who can get married, but should probably be a virgin, mm-hmm. but doesn't. Nece- it doesn't. It's not. It nec- doesn't. Well, necessary. I guess what the if it's like a virgin will give birth. You're like, well, that's a miracle. That's a miracle. But a maiden will give birth. Well, maidens get birth. Give birth all the time. Give birth all the time. So right. it's not necessarily remarkable mm. until it happens with Mary when she fulfills the prophecy in its strictest connotative way, like. Maiden could mean virgin. It often does mean virgin, but she means it literally. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, now, but now I have another question about yeah. Isaiah's words. Yeah. Is if it's a maiden, will give. Mm-hmm. Does this mean an unmarried woman? Uh, <laughs> not necessarily. Oh, it. Okay. <laughs> I, I just, if you keep asking me all the questions, so who is this child? Yeah. Right, so let's just let's, maybe. Oh, let's work the problem backwards. Let's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's the kid, and then let's see what happens. Right. Yeah. Okay. So let, let, let me finish the story. Okay. So of uh, what's happening here. So the sign is given: a maiden will give birth, son will be called Emmanuel, mm-hmm. like God with us. Will that be its name? His name? Symbolically, okay. at the very least, or maybe actually, but mm-hmm. symbolically at the very least. And before this child grows up, Judah's enemies will be defeated. Okay. That's, okay. That's what's on the line. That's what's on the line. So when, when, who's the kid? So um, I feel like Maury right now, or so <laughs> Doctor <laughs> Phil, or something. Give, give me the who's the kid? Test. Well, so that prophecy is given in verse fourteen of chapter seven, and then just a few verses later, the very beginning of chapter eight. I believe Isaiah himself is going to fulfill the prophecy he has just given to Ahaz. So God tells him to take a large scroll and write a name on it. Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. <laughs> That's yep. the name. And then Isaiah has sex with his wife, who's just called the prophetess in the book of Isaiah. And she conceives and gives birth to a son. And then that son is named Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. And his name, by the way, means the one who will take the plunder, the one who will be victorious, mm-hmm. in other words. And then this descriptive statement. For before the boy knows how to say my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. Oh, so they've applied the prophecy to this kid. That's exactly right. okay. So what I think is happening is that Isaiah prophesies to King Ahaz, a child will be born and he will, before he's old, before he knows how to say father or mother, Mm -hmm. your problems are going to be solved. Assyria is going to come in and take care of these two kings in the north. And then Isaiah fulfills that prophecy by God's fiat. <laughs> he says, God tells him to name his son Maharshalal Hashbaz. He has a son. And then before his son is 
two years old, Assyria comes and takes out Ahaz's enemies. Okay. 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 So, what does that mean for the virgin birth? I have in- <laughs> so many questions. <laughs> you want to ask your questions before we ask the questions? So, what does this have to say about Mary and Joseph and Jesus? I guess so, because that's the more important thing. Okay. My questions are just probably more annoying than helpful. Well, let's get to Mary and Joseph, and okay. then we'll go backwards. Okay. So, yeah, let's, the- let's focus on why this actually matters. So the the name God with us, yes, Emmanuel, Emmanuel is first given in the context of military conquest. Okay. Okay. But Matthew transforms that slightly to suggest that our biggest enemy isn't Assyria, it isn't Samaria, it isn't Babylon, it's sin. Hmm. And you shall call him's name Jesus, just like God gives Isaiah a name, God gives Joseph a name, Jesus. He will save the people from their sin. I think Matthew is trying to set us up like Jesus is coming to do war. Joshua, he's a new Joshua. Right, right, right. He's coming to do war, not against Assyria, not against Judah, not against Babylon, not against Rome, but against sin. Mm. The virgin birth is a sign that the defeat of sin is around the quarter. And you're getting that because it's you will call him Jesus for he will save the people from their sin. Sins. Sins, yes. Where you would, in the Isaiah story, expect, and you will call him Malhar Shalhal Heshbaz mm-hmm. because he, he will save the people from the Assyrians or That's from right. the Israel, That's nor- right. northern Israel leaders. That's right. But now the real enemy of God's people is mm-hmm. sin, mm-hmm. and this new son in the pattern of um, Isaiah and Malhar Shalhal Heshbaz is going to save people from the threat of sin. That's right. That's dope. So cool, right? Okay, I'm here for that. And it's also a sign of judgment against Ahaz. Right after Marhal Shalal Hashbaz <laughs> was born, Assyria comes and wipes out the two leaders in the north of Israel. And then you know what happens next? Mm. God calls Assyria further south into Judah to deal with the half-hearted king Ahaz oh. and to dethrone him from power. That's so, what Isaiah threatens Ahaz with anyway. Oh, okay. So what's really fascinating then is the virgin birth is a sign of the destruction of the true people of God's enemies, but it's also a destruction of the false leaders mm. of God's people as well. And what's really interesting is right after the story, we're introduced to another Jew who sits on a throne who dismisses the sign of God's coming kingdom, King Herod. Oh. King Herod shows is the next character we're introduced to and he just like king ahaz is going to be given a sign he rejects the significance of it and soon he'll be dethroned from power whoa <laughs> okay so that's why i think this story is so important okay so for us uh, to understand matthew so okay so let me try let me try let me try so matthew brings up the prophecy and story from isaiah 7 and 8 in order to communicate to us two truths one that god is providing a son who will save his people from their real enemies, not the Assyrians, but sin itself. And yet when that son comes and when the signs that accompany him come, the evil and corrupt leaders in Israel will ignore that sign and therefore will be judged by their ignoring of that sign. That's right. That's really cool. Yeah. Okay. The virgin birth will be a sign of judgment against Herod and leaders like him who reject him, which by the way is exactly what the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Jesus will do all the way up to his death. Yes. They will claim that this virgin birth that never in their eyes never mm-hmm. happened is the reason why they should dismiss him as a Messiah. Right. But it's actually the very grounds on which Matthew says 
is that makes him the Messiah. They're judged by their denial of the virgin birth the same way Ahaz is judged by his refusal to ask for a sign. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> it's got so many layers, That's it's hard crazy. to keep track of almost. Yeah. Okay, here, here's what I'm wondering. I was going to ask this question, but I was like, ah, oh, it's kind of meta, maybe I won't. But now that we're talking about uh, refusing or accepting the signs of God, mm-hmm. I think it's a good question. Why is Matthew looping in prophetic fulfillment in his story? Hmm. And I'm asking that question for a very specific reason. Because like when I was growing up and like going to high school and summer camps and stuff, the biggest apology, you know, I mean like a, a defense of the truth of scripture or a defense of Jesus that I heard was the fulfillment of prophecy. And people would list like, oh, here's every prophecy in the uh, New Testament, you know, that Jesus mm-hmm. is said to have fulfilled. And it's like, how could that have happened without God being sovereign? And right, right, right. and as, as I've grown as a Bible reader over mm-hmm. the decades or whatever since then, I'm like, I don't think the only thing Matthew's doing here is trying to prove to you that God is in control or right. that Jesus was fulfilling prophecy to prove to you that he's the Messiah, mm-hmm. right? I don't, I don't think it has to not do those things, mm-hmm. but what you just did here is far more interesting <laughs> that Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah or said another way, the prophecy of Isaiah was pointing towards something Mm-hmm. That would happen in the future, not just to prove that Jesus is who he said he is, which is what I was always taught, right? but to tell us more about what Jesus came to do and yeah. who he is. Yeah. We talked about, I believe, in the first Matthew podcast is that the Old Testament sets up a whole bunch of shotguns over the mantelpiece. Mm-hmm. In good storytelling, you have a shotgun over the mantelpiece that if you, ex- you show your audience it in scene one, it needs to go off by right. scene five. That's or- good writing. For it to be an effective climax to the story. Right. And so I think what Matthew is doing is he sees the Old Testament as just a rack of shotguns. Mm-hmm. I, I, know, I remember like, shot, we got to do a better metaphor than shotguns because there's just too <laughs> many guns. Um, but it, he sees it as a, this rack of shotguns that are all fired in Jesus. Right. The whole Old Testament is the story of deliverance and salvation and God's perseverance and God's love and God's care and God's power. And all of those stories about God's interaction with God's people are all fulfilled and come to their climax in Jesus. They're all fired in right. the fullest, final, and greatest form when Jesus hits the scene. Yeah, and I think what, what I'm trying to get at using this, the shotgun metaphor in this question is, let, let's take the shotgun metaphor. Yeah. So let's say in the opening of a movie, mm-hmm. uh, you're introduced to this family and they're they're giving a cousin a tour of their home mm-hmm. and they go to the fireplace and above the mantle of the fireplace is a buckshot, like a, you know, yeah, a big yeah. old shotgun up there. And the cousin's like, oh, what's, what's this shotgun for? And he's like, oh, this was a gift given to me by my estranged uncle. Uh, and every time I look at it, I remember how bitter I am. You know, and <laughs> right, you get this whole family history. Right. And so then in the last scene of that movie, when the uncle shows up and pulls the shotgun off the mantelpiece and, right. and shoots the his, yeah. you know his brother, who who doesn't like him, it's not just a cold blooded murder. Mm-hmm. It's the you've learned about why the gun was there and it's a it's a, fa- it's a symbol of a family feud. It's a symbol yes. of betrayal. It's and a you know, symbol of violence. It's you know like, that there's more happening there mm-hmm. than just either good writing, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. or someone just killing someone, right. 
And so I think what I was saying was I th- I think like what Matthew's doing is he's pulling on Isaiah to give more color yeah. and meaning yes. to what Jesus came to accomplish in his yes. virgin birth. Right. And that to me just rounds out a whole lot more. So now to yeah. draw my giant circle back to my original question yeah. is the Bible does that all the time. Mm-hmm. Matthew's going to point out a ton of them. Mm-hmm. What does that say to us today as people who don't want to be Ahaz or the Pharisees looking at the signs mm-hmm. that God has given us? Meaning the Old Testament? The Old Testament. Yeah. And the and their fulfillment. God's put these signs yeah. all in to show us who Jesus is. And he's like, see, believe. And we don't want to be like the Pharisees or Ahaz who don't. I'm just like, it puts us as a reader. Mm-hmm. Matthew's doing something really unique here. He's like, ah, don't be like Ahaz. Yeah. Instead, it feels like he's calling us to do something with mm-hmm. the signs that I just have never approached Matthew that way before. Well, what's interesting is you ask that question and we're immediately given the character of Joseph. Mm. What does Joseph do with all these signs? Verse 24, and when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him and he took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave the, him the name Jesus. Mm. So the thing that's interesting about that question is like, okay, so what do we do with all the signs? Yeah. We could reject them like King Ahaz right. or like King Herod will do in a, in a second. Or we could act on them mm. like Joseph. This is maybe an, a long way to answer your question. But what I think is really fascinating about that one line, he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. Like what an odd detail. Matthew has loaded every phrase with meaning. This one seems to come out of nowhere, right? Mm. But I think perhaps Joseph just read the book of Isaiah really, really, really well. Hmm. And if you notice in Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah is given the name of a son, right? Yeah. And then he's told to name the son that name. But Isaiah is never told by God to have sex with his wife, right? Hmm. He takes that part upon himself, or at the very least, God is silent on that. Yeah. So I'm just wondering if I, Joseph is paying attention. He's like, okay, God has given me a name. But he's already done all the conceiving and the mm. and the childbearing himself, and I also know that God is doing something apart from human agency that has always been done through human agency in the past. Right. And so I'm not going to do what God has not told me to do. Yeah. And God didn't tell Isaiah to do this part, so I'm not going to do it either. Mm. I'm only going to name him once God does all the work. Right. <laughs> you know. And so yeah. I was like, I think he's just reading his Bible really well. And the fact that he doesn't have sex with Mary is proof that he's read Isaiah very carefully. Mm. I think the invitation is, let's read our Bibles far more carefully, like <laughs> on a really simple level, but also read them in such a way that they have real import for the salvation of all of humanity and the creation of the entire world. Mm. Like, I don't think Joseph didn't have sex with his wife just because he felt awkward. <laughs> Right. I think he's reading appropriately the import of what's happening mm. in their lives. God is creating a new world apart from human agency. Mm-hmm. He's creating a new kingdom, and this is his son. I am somehow a new Isaiah, mm. a father to a son that will predict the end of the era and kingdoms of sin. Yeah. Or who will judge Herod yeah. and the leaders who act too pious but aren't really. I'm not getting in the way of that. Right. <laughs> like, I'm I not th- touching that. I'm not touching that Like because 
he knows what God is up to. Mm. And so I think our invitation is fairly similar. It's like, read your Bible carefully and know that God is up to something far more than the simple play-by-play of history. Mm. The history of Israel is the prototype for the salvation of all of the universe. Yeah. And <laughs> you know, does that make sense? Yeah, it's really interesting. Is that an answer to your question? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think my question was kind of simple and was worded really difficultly. So I think you're riffing on a like on a more <laughs> interesting point. I think my question was like, what should we do with the signs in the Bible to not be like Ahaz? Obey them. Yeah. <laughs> take, take heed of them. Like, yes. And now you're you're like fleshing out what it looks like when somebody really pays attention to what God's doing in history. Yeah. You're like, oh, God's doing this? Let me read my Bible and see how that maps on. Oh, this would be a very holy way to approach the situation. Which then, thinking about how closely Joseph was reading Isaiah, takes me back to one of my annoying questions that I said I was going to ask earlier. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll only do one. Please. But I've never thought of this before. So chapter 8 of Isaiah, verse 3. Like you said, mm-hmm. God didn't command Isaiah to go and have sex in order to create this child. Mm-hmm. He just does it. We're not told if that's wrong or right. Right. It's just, Bible's silent on it. It's Im- ambiguous. It's, it's just, we don't have thus saith the Lord. No. One, but we have it right before and after. That's all I'm saying. And and this is me reading my English Bible. Okay. So it may be the question's far, yeah. very easy. But it says that, and I, being Isaiah, went to the prophetesses and she conceived and bore a son. Ah. What's going on there? Is he just... Did he go to like some... Is, like, well, that's what I thought at first. The NIV says, then I made love to the prophetess, which... Doesn't sound much better to doesn't me. Sa- I was like, <laughs> but I was like, I, I was like, what's happening here? Well, so it's interesting. Here's what's okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's not called his wife. Right. There are really good Hebrew words for <laughs> wife. Right. <laughs> he goes to a prophetess or the prophetesses who would have been maidens, unmarried uh-huh. people, virgins. And like I said, like... So is this an unmarried woman who gives birth to the son? I understand. That would get the king's attention if yes. one of his virgin prophetesses gets pregnant. Mm-hmm. That seems like very untoward. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I I wrestled with this idea. Yeah. because, like, So what is actually happening here? Right. Because it sounds like Isaiah is having an extramarital affair right. and having a son. So in chapter 7, verse 3 we hear that Isaiah is already a father. Mm-hmm. Go out and tell your son, Shear Jeshub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct. So like, we know that Isaiah uh, has a son, presumably of a wife. Right. And scholarly consensus seems to indicate that the prophetess is code for his wife. But she wouldn't be a maiden or a virgin. She would be of marriage, marriable age. But she was already married. Right. <laughs> but remember, it. the point is that this would be a fairly obvious sign to King Ahaz and a prophetic sign act of having a child between one of Israel's leading prophets mm-hmm. and his prophetess wife would be a fairly public event. And Isaiah would not be the first prophet to have children as a sign no, right. to the nation that something significant is about to happen. Right. So I don't think you need to read it as that Isaiah had sex with a virgin and that child mm-hmm. came about through the scandal or whatever. I don't right. think you need to read it that way. I think you can read it like, no, 
Isaiah, as the prophet of Israel, had sex with his wife and had a child and then prophetically named that child something that would communicate to the king of Israel that this was the fulfillment mm, of prophecy. Right. And that happens often enough throughout the prophets. Yeah. For it to be enough for me to make sense? Oh, totally. I think that could make total sense for me too. I think what's interesting yeah. if I'm just like allowing myself to let the Bible be scandalous as it often is. Yeah. You know, nothing's on the line if Isaiah did this yeah. in, a, in, a, in an untoward kind of way. Like okay. nothing breaks in the Bible if that's true. And so he's just in, God perhaps commanding. No, he didn't command. Well, right, so here's right, my point right. is, is what, what's interesting with everything you've put in my head, yeah. you're doing this to me. <laughs> everything you've put in my head is okay. We should come to expect that God does miraculous births in order to prove something to his people. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes he needs to do that. Just ex nihilo. You know, mm-hmm. he opens Sarah's womb or something mm-hmm. crazy happens. Yeah. And so I, I'm just curious if we had like a Hagar situation here where God was going to do something miraculous oh, right. with maybe even his wife or this right, prophetess right. woman or whatever, and Isaiah took it upon himself you know, to, mm-hmm. to go and, and, yeah. and, and do this himself since he wasn't commanded to, which then Joseph reads this and he's like, oh, I see what's happening here. I'm not touching Mary until she gives birth then. I, not that I want to be like Isaiah. I don't want to right. be like Isaiah. Yeah. I see what you're saying. So anyway, yeah, I'm yeah, just like, yeah. it doesn't really matter. <laughs> None yeah, of this really yeah, yeah. matters, but... You're just putting all the stuff in my head. <laughs> yeah, like, Whoa, it's really fascinating when, like, when you pay attention to the places that God speaks and doesn't speak. Oh yeah, I feel like it opens up a whole new way to read scripture. That's mm-hmm. actually really important, especially when you read some of the narratives and kings and judges. It's right. Like, it's like when God speaks, it's an important piece of information, and when He withholds speech, yep, that's all. And people act anyway. That's also really an important piece of information. And regardless, Joseph is picking up on that. Yeah, well, that that's just cool to kind of talk about. So, all right, well, that I think we've covered all of chapter one now with the genealogies and then the, the birth narrative, or at least the Joseph part of the birth narrative. The, well, really, we just talked about Mary, yeah, and the child. We yeah. didn't even talk about Joseph. No. So, and Jesus isn't even born yet; he's still in the womb. Yeah, this so, is a conception uh, narrative we've <laughs> talked about here. So, we'll go back. We'll talk about Joseph and the way that he's connected to the Old Testament story of Joseph next week. Oh, okay, but for now. That's it. That's it. (laughs) Will we get to the wise men and Herod next week too, or will it just be Joseph? We'll get to the wise men and all the fun stuff. That's exciting. Okay. Well, thank you guys for joining us in our trip through Matthew. This has been a fun first chapter. Can't wait to continue, and we'll see you there next week. Thank you for listening to the Spoken Gospel Podcast. Spoken Gospel creates short films, devotionals, and podcasts like this one. Everything we make is free because of generous supporters like you. To see our resources, visit SpokenGospel.com or subscribe to our YouTube channel. Thanks for listening. See you next week.